I don't understand what's wrong. I'm tired all the time. I've no energy. I'm frustrated at not being able to study, not being able to go out, not being able to do things. I just think, like, you know, it's very unfair that I'm 17 years old and I'm stuck in the house all day. I spend most of my days in bed and I'd get up and I'd have something to eat and I'd go back to bed again. And that's my life, really, every day. And it consumes your life. It certainly did in my case. It seemed that my life seemed to be uh, almost drying up all the time. My world seemed to be coming in because um, I wasn't able to do the things I was doing. I was unable. To, I wasn't well enough to go to matches. I wasn't able to go to nightclubs. I wasn't able to go out with friends. My legs were paining me. I wasn't able to stand uh, in a pub if there was no seats around. I'd have to come home. And I became started becoming tired and tired and spending more time in bed, being unable to get out of bed. I would have spent about three years basically in bed doing 17, 18 hours a day in bed. My mother fed me in bed for that length of time. And without her today, I don't know where I'd be. Uh, I shudder to think if I, if I was living alone or where I had no one t- no help or no support, but my own immediate family here were brilliant, and without them, I honestly don't know where I'd be today. It was about nine when I first got sick. My glandular fever... And I never really seemed to get out of that. For years after that, I had no energy and was tired all the time. And just it, as years went on, it got worse and worse. Then when I was about 11, I had a very good year. I hardly missed any school at all that year. I was, I was in very good form. Then when I went into sixth class, I started getting sick again. I started getting very tired and no energy. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. And as I went into first year then, it was worse again. I was sick every day. Every day I went to school, I was sick. And I'd come home in the evening and I'd be as tired and sick and I'd be like that all day, every day, all year. I was 22 when I was diagnosed as having ME. But I would say my life was as normal as anybody in their late teens or early 20s was. I was working hard. I loved my work. Um, I was a cabinet maker joiner. Um, I worked long hours. I suppose it would be fair to say I burned a candle at both ends in that I went out at the weekends quite a bit. My life was normal, that's what I'd say about it. Apart from the fact that my energy levels seemed to be on the way in for a number of years and... Uh, probably you could say a slow but progressive deterioration in that area and uh, I had started going to doctors and being told just slightly ran down and put on iron tablets vitamin tablets etc and I didn't seem to be making up the ground that I seemed to be constantly losing I knew there was something wrong but I had gone to the doctors um, I had had the blood tests 
there didn't seem to be anything that anyone could do. I actually hadn't heard of ME at the time. I don't know, I collapsed at work on the 12th of May, 91. I went into a rapid decline then for quite a number of years and I'm only starting to come out of it now in the last year and a half, um, two year. I was a lecturer in mathematics at University College Cork and uh, I was about 40 years of age and I got a viral infection, a flu that didn't seem to last very long but uh, felt bad for a week afterwards but then it never went away. All the symptoms of flu, all the weakness, all the sweating spells and all that type of thing just stayed there and this, this really chronic fatigue that you couldn't get over. And then at the beginning there were dreadful symptoms like food allergies, substance allergies, nightmares, sweating spells sore throat, sensitivity to light and to sound, um, really severe symptoms that I'd never experienced before. So you go to the doctor, you, he says there's nothing wrong with you, he sends you away for tests, the tests all seem normal, they don't pick up anything in your bloodstream, they think you're okay. Eventually they say, well, maybe you should go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, is all in your mind. And that's the worst aspect of ME or chronic fatigue syndrome, that people don't actually believe there's anything wrong with you. They think you're hamming it, you know what I mean? Anybody who'd know me would know very well that I wouldn't want to be sick. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever been a day sick out of my life. And even since I got ill, I've tried to come into work every day. So it's, it's not something you put on. It often happens to people who are in the fire lines and mostly women um, mothers, nurses um, people who are exposed to other people's viruses, teachers especially seem to be very prone to this and it seems to be an illness that affects people who have a really healthy lifestyle athletes, uh, I'm a non-drinker and a non-smoker myself You know, it's, it doesn't happen to people who seem to be leading unhealthy lifestyles and it's a great mystery I don't know what the real reason for it is I mean partly the virus is to blame there may be psychological reasons as well in that it hits people who are maybe particularly sensitive, people who are prone to allergies like asthma and celiac disease and various other things like that. But it's a, it's a very great mystery. It's a 20th century disease. Basically, I think one could really put it down to pollution. It's, it's, we're living in a polluted environment. So if you're breathing substances and breathing chemicals and eating additives and food stuff, for some people they become extremely sensitive to things like that. And this is the way that the, the body tends to fight back. I remember one doctor saying to me, who believed in it and helped me an awful lot, he's dead now unfortunately, his name was Hilary Webb and he operated in Dublin, and he said, it's not life-threatening, it won't kill you, but it's lifestyle-threatening, it will absolutely ruin your lifestyle, it'll ruin your social life, it'll ruin your job, it'll ruin your family life, because you just don't seem to have the energy to do all the things you'd like to do. Bob knows. Oh, my sister used to always say that I look like Sally at home when I was little because I have the same nose. Hopefully I don't. Claire, don't depress us all now by start saying that you're ugly or something because Claire is extremely good looking. <laughs> and My school friends, well, when they'd ring, um, they'd ask what was wrong with me. I wouldn't have an answer for them. I wouldn't know what to say. Like I'd tell them, like, you know, I was just tired like, and I had no energy. And at this time I was beginning to get pains and my ribs and my legs and my arms. I didn't know what to say to them. You know, so it it came like, you know, now when they'd ring and they'd ask me what was wrong, I'd more or less change the subject. I kind of asked them, well, how was school today? I'd hoped to um, do physiotherapy. Like, I didn't know whether... I didn't think I'd be able to get the points to do it because the points are very high. But I did hope to have a good run at it, like a good chance. I was supposed to do my leave insert this year but um, I've decided not to do it because I've missed about three or four months of school this year and a few months last year, and I'm not able to study at home. Concentration is gone completely. It's just put no necessary pressure on me. I was hope, hoping that, like, by saying that I won't do my leaving cert this year, that I'd be taking pressure off. 
but it isn't really. I miss school, I miss my friends. I miss being active, I miss doing things. You get very frustrated when you're not able to do things, especially when people don't understand what's wrong with you and think you're just, maybe, think you're Dawson or think, think there's nothing wrong with you, think you're just lazy. It's very hard to handle. The hardest thing about it is you don't look sick. So when you meet someone, like, you know, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, you, you look well, like, you know, you don't look like there's anything wrong. And I think that's why people find it so hard to understand. Most people will trace back the, the origins of their ME to a virus or a cold or a flu or something like that. But in my case, I honestly can't pinpoint something like that. But what I do remember and what I do trace back uh, the beginnings of this too was in March of 86, I was preparing for my leaving cert and I got fillings in my teeth. Uh, I would have had f- five, six fillings done and they were the ordinary black mercury filling. And those fillings, there's 27% of, uh, of the black fillings are made up with mercury and those fillings leak, the mercury leak from them. That's something I didn't know at the time, but which I've found out since. I got them done in March, and in May, the side started deteriorating in my left eye. Went, went to the eye and ear, and they could find nothing wrong. But the site has continued to deteriorate right along, since the 86, right up to quite recently. And uh, it's part of the energy problem, and the site seemed to be the first signal that there was a problem in the body. And I noticed that in, say, 88, uh, when I'd be out playing soccer or expending in energy, that when I would come back in after the match, my sight would have gotten worse in my left eye, which was where the problem was at the time. And after resting up for a while, um, the sight would seem to come back up. So it was fluctuating as I used up energy. So it was almost like a gauge. And uh, it took me a long time to tie the two together, but in hindsight, that's what was happening, yeah. This has been going on nearly nine years for me, and there's no end in sight, as far as I can see. Like, I've gone to reflexologists, kinesiology, acupuncture, specialists, faith healers, like we've been up and down the country and nothing has seemed to help except acupuncture has helped me. I, I've stopped getting panic attacks since I went and it relaxed me and you get a good night's sleep. But um, the first time it happened here, I didn't know what was wrong. My parents didn't know what was wrong. Like it started off not too bad. Like I wasn't breathing right, but I wasn't really distressed. But as the night went on, like, you know, it began to get worse and it began to get more distressed and tired. And I think, like, maybe my parents thought it was an asthma attack. So my mother brought me over to casualty and they gave me um, a Ventolin inhaler there and told me to use it whenever I would get a panic attack. But that night, a neighbour of ours gave me a Ventolin inhaler to use and... uh, gave me the shakes so that just complicated things it didn't it didn't clear up what was wrong you hope she's going to be better soon and then she's a few good days and then it comes back again 
and she's in bad form and I take her to the doctor again and to talk about her glands and the glandular fever and she has had antibiotics and they never were any use to her the antibiotics never worked in fact she was worse if she took any kind of medication antibiotics are the worst thing she can take and we have tried alternative medicine homeopathic remedies and herbs and we tried everything but uh, she did get in good form we don't know was it as a result of those but it, it always kept coming back I think part of the problem is that ME is really a collection of diseases, a collection of things. It's really the immune system of the body becoming oversensitive or overactive and reacting to almost everything. So you, you live in an environment where things... I mean, you could be feeling fine one minute. You know, you've been, you're just going along in a car or a bus or something, and then out of nowhere, all your symptoms just come together. And then maybe an hour later, it goes away again. And you never know when that's going to happen. So it makes it very, very um, undependable. I think the energy aspect is the worst of it. I mean, if the kids come to you and say, come on, Dad, and play a game of football in the back garden with us, which is, I think, what any father should be doing with his kids, you've got to say to them, well, if I do that, I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be knackered for the next few years. Of course, the, the problem is, when you do get a little bit of energy, you know, you... you absolutely wasted. You know, you go out, you do things because energy's back. And then, of course, you're down you're for a week, maybe two weeks, three weeks after that. So if you get a little energy from anywhere, you should harvest it very, very carefully. You should uh, put it in cold storage. But people with my personality type don't like to do that. I met one or two people who had the teenage form of the disease, which is very, very severe indeed. This will hit them again, healthy young individuals at the age of maybe 16 or 17. And everyone thinks, oh, well, they're just malingering and they don't want to go to school but they're really very, very ill. And, you know, that form of the illness is very, very sad because they miss out on their education, they'll miss out on their social life, they'll miss out on so many things. But that form of the illness does seem to improve a lot. A lot of those people in their mid-twenties do tend to get better, which is very hopeful. But the people who get it at about the age of 40, like I did, don't seem to get an awful lot better. Yeah, you, you, I would say now that I'm functioning on about 50% energy. In the beginning, I was, I was trying to function on about 10% energy. But now I have about half my energy back. But half your energy isn't very much to keep going in you know, an active lifestyle. It means that half the time you're lying flat on your back and the other half... I mean, Waking up every morning of your life for 10 years, feeling as if you'd run a marathon the night before. And most people get some refreshment from sleep. When they wake up, they feel refreshed. They can go for a couple of hours anyway. Waking up feeling that you could stay in bed forever and that you have to drag yourself out and your legs are like lead is a very, very bad sensation. And also psychologically, if you've got on my going to be like this all the time, is this it? Is this the end of it? And um, I think that's, that's the saddest part of it all, really. What I'd say about it, I mean, in my own case, it was the fear of the unknown in the beginning. People are saying, oh, you're tired, but I was saying, but it's more serious than tired. Like, I know people say tired, but tired isn't really an adequate enough word to describe uh, what it is. It's beyond tiredness, it's beyond fatigue. It's fatigue and exhaustion of the extreme. If you were to say to somebody, God, I feel tired, the first thing they'll do is yawn and say, yeah, I know, uh, it's the weather or whatever, you know. It it almost seems to uh, trivialise what you're talking about, you know. Whereas, like, I had the fatigue and the exhaustion and the sight problems and the tremors, shakes throughout the body, pains in the joints, legs, not able to carry me, not able to walk, burning sensations in me hands, feet, throughout the body, which couldn't be explained. A lot of frightening kind of 
unexplained stuff, you know. I was literally so exhausted and so tired that I was unable to have a bath. You know, if you get into a hot bath, that it actually literally drains you. And that's how weak and how bad I was. I honestly remember sitting on the side of the bath, putting my feet in the water, washing myself with a, with a cloth or with a, with a sponge and unable to have a bath. Then I started using showers and I found the showers tremendous. I started uh, using hydrotherapy, as they call it, using cold showers, getting into the shower as anyone would have a normal shower and start turning down the temperature until it gets so cold, they're literally going, <laughs> jumping around the bath, you know. And uh, the effect that that had on me, that really um, helped me tremendously and still does now. There's days now, uh, sometimes, that I wouldn't be great and I'll go on and have me shower, a cold shower, and wh- whatever it does with the energy or whatever, it, it's fantastic, yeah. Do you think that it's a lonely disease? It is, it's a very lonely disease. Like, no matter how much people try to understand... They can't understand. They can't understand what's wrong with you. I think it's mainly because you don't look sick. But I find it hard to understand myself. It's just like... Um, it takes your energy. It, it takes everything. It takes your life. It takes... Um, it takes your hope. It takes your spirit. Like you're... Just... It makes you feel down. Do you have bad times and bad moments? I do, yeah. Usually late at night because I find it hard to sleep and it comes to about half eleven at night and like I'm facing a long night of trying to get sleep or not sleeping and it's just, you know, it just kind of gets to the moment and you feel, what am I going to do? You know, what can I do? Like, where can I go? You know, who can I talk to that'll understand? And the ME Trust in Dublin, like, they're the only people, like, I've found that can understand and that can, like, maybe get you over a bad patch. You know, you can ring them up and they'll listen to you and they'll maybe suggest something and, you know, it's 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 good to have someone to talk to. I suppose you get depressed because, like, you know, you're stuck at home in bed all day. I think that's just, it's just lack of contact with people and feeling feeling isolated and lonely and feeling that there's no hope for you, really. Feeling that, like, you know, you've done everything, but um, nothing seems to work. And when you've tried a different therapy or a different, a different specialist, and they've told you you were going to, they were going to get you better, and they haven't. That's when you get depressed, really. You just feel desperate, like you know, you feel that there's nothing you can do. That you know, what are you going to do? Like, it's just I can't stick anymore. This kind of. I suppose, in a sense, you can say it's it's wrecked my life, really. But maybe the sort of life I had had to be wrecked, maybe it had to be stopped. So I'm trying to 
don't be philosophical about that, but uh, I would love to have one day of normal energy that I could climb stairs and walk about without feeling totally exhausted and not break out in a, in a, in a sweat. I mean, I'm rubbing my forehead now here just to show you the temperature's quite normal here, but I sweat all the time because your, your, your temperature control goes. I think, you see, we're talking about a new type of illness. Traditionally, the type of illness, there was one set of symptoms and there was uh, one disease and one cure and that was it. But things like... ME and AIDS and various things. They're, they're, they're 20th century viruses. They attack the whole person, I think. I think that's the problem. They attack every part of your body. And I think the only way to fight them is to attack back with every possible... Now, I've been to all sorts of quacks, I must admit. I won't name any names, but I could names. And I'm afraid to say I think there are a lot of people out there who are ripping off people with ME. I think they're promising them cures. Now, you will feel better when you come out from an acupuncturist. You've been in acupuncture treatment, you get all these needles stuck in here. For a day afterwards, you're going to feel better. There's no doubt about that. Whether that's real or psychological, I don't know. But it's not a cure. And I've had all sorts of things done to me, from reflexology to people burning herbs over me to people giving me homeopathic cures. To... You'll try everything. I mean, if the standard medical procedures don't work, then you'll have a go at anything that's available. But for me, anyway, none of them really worked. The only thing that did work was attempt to, to, to change diet and to change lifestyle and to change rest patterns and try to slow down. That's the only thing that does work at all. But they're not very positive things to do with your life. I mean, you would like to do enough. Really. I have a lot of ideas, a lot of things I'd like to try, a lot of books I'd like to write, but... Whether I'll be given the energy to them or not, I don't know. I mean, I can really do anything you can do sitting up in bed. That's about it. But apart from that... If it requires a lot of activity, I don't have the energy to do that. I have another child with a high temperature and sick. I get an antibiotic for them. And it's gone in a couple of days. But it never made any difference to Margaret. So I never, I stopped getting her any medication, you know. One of the GP we went to recommended uh, that she go to see a psychiatrist. Because she was very down at the time and depressed. But she was only depressed from her illness. And they weren't prepared to find out why she was depressed, only three, to depression. So she didn't want to go, but she went went reluctantly and she wanted her to take Prozac, which I didn't want and she didn't want. So she took it anyway for a couple of days and she was extremely sick. She was trembling and, oh, I have never seen her so sick. Vomiting and shivering and, oh, feeling more depressed than she had been when she was taking it and she stopped altogether and we we refused to go down that road because that wasn't the answer. Anyway, I wouldn't be prepared to have her taking medication. I wanted to get to the root of her problem. So I'm still trying. People would ask what's wrong with you to look at, like you mightn't look sick. And they find it hard to see, like, that you are sick when you're not looking bad. Like, inwardly, like, you can be in, you can be in pain, in pain all over and very depressed. And when people just ask you what's wrong and tell you that, oh, there's nothing wrong with you, like, you're looking fine. It's just, just, you just can't take that. Like, it's just, um, it's hard to deal with. It's hard to know what to say to them, like. You could go off and start telling them about, like, you know, well, how bad you are and that. But they don't want to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that when they ask you how you are. So usually when someone would ask me, well, how are you? Like, I'd just say, oh, I'm fine. Like, you wouldn't want to get into it. One of the hard things that you learn about life when you're confronted with a long-term illness 
And I'm sure it's not alone attributable to um, me, but to all kinds of illnesses, is that people whom you were friends with and people whom you would have gone out with and uh, worked with and whatever, you realise they weren't friends, they were acquaintances. That is tough. What I've gained out of this is I've gained a handful of really great friends of people that would stand by you through thick and through thin. And um, me is a traumatic traumatic thing, not alone on the person that's that has the illness, but on those around them and um, their immediate family, wives, brothers, sisters, whatever, you know. It's still hard to understand it, even in such close proximity as immediate family, you know, you're experiencing the person who has it, who is naturally very irritable and in bad form. It must be very hard to get in, say, that person's mind. I remember the lecture I had to give sitting down that uh, I came in and I was very determined not to let it interfere with my career and my life. But it's a funny feeling lecturing to a group of maybe 200 students and hearing your voice leave your mouth and really not hearing it coming back, as if you were in a, so some sort of echo chamber or other. You could hear feedback from your voice like you do on a transatlantic phone call. And then all of a sudden the, the room would start to swim and the class would seem to rotate in front of your eyes and you'd sort of sit down. And really you didn't pretend to the class what was going on, which is the hardest thing. Maybe that's a sort of false pride. Maybe if, maybe if when I got the illness first, if I'd taken a year off work and said, look, I'm not fit to go and cope, and maybe I'd be, I'd be better now, I don't know. But at the time I didn't know what was wrong with me. It's a very frightening thing that things are going on within your head, you know. I, I, that sometimes you feel you're going crazy. You feel, my goodness, what's wrong with me? I mean, why am I suddenly being dizzy? Why am I suddenly uh, afraid? of loud noises, what's happening. You get irrational fears as well. Some of the dreams I had were, I could even write a novel on some of the dreams that I had because there were, there were weird scenarios. I remember one being, being, being in a church with a chainsaw and I was absolutely sort of, you know, cutting all the seats in the church up with a chainsaw. I, I thought, my God, what am I doing this for? You know, outlandish dreams. Now, people have nightmares and people have you know, uh, disturbing dreams. But these were just absolutely weird dreams. They're almost as if they're... But these are very frightening and very strange symptoms. And you read books, and none of the books tell you about this. You know, I mean, it took me about a year and a half before I even heard of the name of the illness. I mean, I'm quite convinced I had it. And then I spoke to somebody else with similar symptoms, and he'd been diagnosed by somebody in Dublin. I went there. And within a few minutes, the, the, this doctor, Dr. Hilary Webb, whom I'm very grateful to, said to me, you, your classic case of ME, he said... I suppose there isn't the same stigma attached to it as with, as with AIDS. It's not a fatal disease, but it certainly does disrupt your lifestyle an awful lot and makes your life very miserable indeed. On the other hand, I think there are probably people worse off than me. I mean, I know people of my age who have died of heart attacks and they're dead now, so at least I'm still alive and at least carrying on. I don't expect we'll ever get better. I don't expect I'll ever get back to 100% functioning in terms of energy, but, you know, maybe in our system 50% is a pass and uh, I'd be quite happy with 50% for the rest of my life. Are you sure about that? Yeah, well, if it didn't get any worse. I mean, if, if I don't get any worse than at the moment, I'll maybe accept it. I've got used to it. If you've been doing it for 10 years, you get very used to using lifts all the time instead of walking. There was a time when I would never use lifts as a matter of principle. I would always walk up the four or five stories in the building, or certainly to the... Now I use lifts um, uh, as a matter of course. And I remember recently being, being in a lift, just going from the ground floor, the basement to the ground floor, and one of my students looked at me and saying, 
you lazy bastard. And if, if I had the energy, I'd have throttled him. But people don't understand that maybe at four o'clock in the afternoon, you have virtually zero energy. You're living in, in energy debt at that stage. And you have to, um, have to do something to conserve the particular energy. I mean, I now lecture sitting down as much as I can, as much as I possibly can, because it's very exhausting for me to stand for an hour. And um, you'll find that society makes very few concessions. I mean, if I'm in a bus, I mean, I'm afraid I don't get up and give my seat to an old lady. And people look and say, look at that fine, strong, healthy-looking man there. And there's a poor old lady there. And I know very well that the old lady probably has ten times as much energy as I have. I wouldn't give her my seat because I couldn't. I mean, if I stand in a bus for half an hour, especially with bus fumes and everything around, by the time I get to the end of my journey, I'm absolutely knackered. You just feel like, you know, God, you know, wake me up, like, you know, it's a bad dream. But um afraid it's not, it's very real. Uh, you just... Uh, complete loneliness, I think that's... That's the biggest problem with it. You're just lonely and... You know, you've no one that'll understand you. Or no one that can help you. And I think the fact that there's no one that can help and that can do anything for you, that is the biggest problem. Like, if you not, know, they're not going to tell you, like, I'll put you on a course of antibiotics, like, you know, you'll be you'll be fine in a week. You know, um, I'm sick for nine years now, and I don't know, it's hard to see an end. You try, like, you know, you're told never to give up hope, but... um. It's very hard. It's very hard to keep hoping. You can't afford to dream. It's just too much of a disappointment. No, it's just too disappointing. You just can't. You can't hope. Well, although I was hoping, like, that I'd be able to go back to school next year and do my leaving. But I don't, I, I don't know whether I believe that I can or not. But um, I'm hoping, trying to anyway. Margaret's always feeling sick and down and people are always asking me what's wrong with her and they say you shouldn't let her stay at home from school and she looks well and what's wrong with her and feel they don't believe me half the time. Even some doctors have told me not to let her stay at home from school and don't panic and she'll grow out of it and... I mean, it's always there. It's like a weight hanging over you all the time. You never can get away from it. We have taken her to um, faith healers and homeopaths and we had our house checked for electric magnetic fields and we changed her bedroom because there was water running under the house. and To feed her to its end. Absolutely, especially late at night when she's crying and can't sleep and I've no one to turn to. What was happening in my case is my body had become toxic and I was unable to get rid of the toxins from the body in the natural process that we all do. And for me to touch myself anywhere on the body was like touching a a bruise, like you got a kick in the shin playing soccer or something. And it, it really was so, I was so sore all over. And I remember uh, 
uh, lady Sheila, who uh, I'm deeply indebted to, who done an awful lot for me. And the first time I went to her, I was squirming on the plinth when she was massaging me. And she said to me, but Paul, I'm barely touching you. And she showed me that she was barely rubbing me, you know, and that I was just so toxic and so, so. So that helped me hugely. Um, I also discovered a therapy called Reiki, which is it's um, an ancient Tibetan form of channeling or healing. I went to somebody uh, a number of years ago and I found that this was brilliant as well. And because my energy levels were so low, I was so tuned into my body that when Trish put her hands on me and the energy came in, that I could feel this boom coming into the body, the same as literally like being plugged in. I was very sceptical going to have it done because I had gone to so many people, but I couldn't argue with what I felt, you know. Then I I, I felt that uh, I could actually do this myself. And because energy was my problem, energy fascinated me. Like, what was it? It's, it's, it's hard to quantify it. It's a, an invisible commodity, as I say. And uh, I had read a lot about it, and it fascinated me. So I trained to become a Reiki practitioner with the intention of working on myself. And for the last two years, I do an hour of Reiki every morning without fail on myself before I get up and I go to sleep at night working on the energy levels as well before I go to sleep and that really has helped me. I have travelled a long way along the road to recovery. I'm a damn sight better than where I was. It's like, just to, to emphasise the point, I was actually talking to somebody last night and I remember being brought to a doctor about seven miles away a few years ago and I had to be driven there by somebody because I was unable to drive myself that distance. And I remember um, getting ready to go to visit this doctor and having to sit down on the end of the bath to shave myself, taking down a hand mirror to, to shave myself, that my legs were unable to hold me up to stand in front of the mirror to, to shave. And it got me thinking that I often used to bring a chair or a stool into the bathroom in front of the, the wash hand basin to wash my hands and face and to brush my teeth that I, I literally wasn't able to stand to do that. So, yeah, I'm brilliant compared to where I was, really am. I still have problems, but hasn't everybody, you know. I think eventually everybody around about you, no matter how well-intentioned they are, maybe a little suspicion enters their mind that maybe the guy is just pretending, and it's very hard to allay that particular suspicion. Family have been great, and have been very understanding, but when you look okay, people tend to forget I mean, there's only one of my colleagues now who periodically asks me, how are you feeling? Oh, I suppose all the other colleagues don't mention it because they presume I'm okay now. I mean, most of them have forgotten, but some of them never knew I had it in the first place. So if you're still carrying it with you, it's very hard. I mean, I think like the lepers of old, maybe I should wear a little bell or carry a little bell or wear a little sort of thing around my neck. I'm suffering from this. You wouldn't want to draw attention to yourself, but just to remind people. And it's made me a bit more sensitive, I think, to the needs and the feelings of handicapped people. You know, I mean, I would regard myself as handicapped. I mean, I'm sort of totally energy handicapped. I'm learning now very slowly after 10 years to say no, 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 no. It's, it's a beautiful word if you can say it properly. I used to say yes, yes, yes all the time. And 
I now don't go places. I, never, I can plead my health now on, on justifiable grounds. Recently, I, I've taken some very drastic measures. I've resigned from a lot of committees that I'm on because actually I feel a lot of committees you know, are a bit time-wasting anyway. But just they, they are time-consuming. They are exhausting. So I learned to say no, and I find people are understanding and sympathetic. They won't talk with you very long afterwards. They'll accept the decision, as it were. But unless you say no then you can't possibly build up any energy for ordinary tourists. And in fact, you need energy to get well and to get better. And I'd like to think that some of the energy that I was using, handing out to other people, I'm now using it to cure myself. I remember going to one guy who was a faith healer, and God, you know, you go to anybody. I'd have gone to anybody. And I must say, he was a nice man. He had a hand to him, and I came into the room, and he, um, his back was turned to me. And as, Now, maybe he says this to everybody, but he said it to me. He said, I don't know you. He said, I haven't seen you, but I can sense you so I can pick up some vibrations from you. And the feeling I'm getting is that you're a person who has given, 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 given to other people all your life until you've got nothing left now for yourself. I thought, creaky. That's the first time I've ever had anybody describe. I suppose I had spent all my life doing things and giving things to other people. And this described me exactly. He didn't cure me, but at least he described what I was like. And deep down, I feel that a lot of ME and conditions like that stem from psychological reasons. They stem from an inferiority complex. If you feel inferior to other people, for some reason or other, for no reason at all, you spend all your life doing, 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 subconsciously trying to impress other people in the hope that they may like you for what you do rather than what you are. And that's very important. If you don't believe that you are likable and worthy and everything else because you are yourself for no other reason, then you will go around trying to impress people by doing things. So I believe it's a combination of psychological reasons and a combination of medical reasons. The, the, the medical bug, the virus, hits, I think, only a certain type of person. So we should look more at the psychological background of the people who get it. Not that they're pretending, but I think it's people with a certain psychological background are probably more susceptible to this type of thing. Actually, I never met anybody with ME yet, I don't know if I include myself or not, but who weren't rather nice people, friendly people, good people, generous people. And uh, maybe there's something in that. The, the bastards don't seem to get this disease at all. <laughs> One morning, it was about three o'clock in the morning, and I could not sleep. I was up in bed, I turned on the radio, and there was nothing on, and turned on the television, and that was over. It was three o'clock in the morning, there was nothing on. I went round, like, I went round to the rooms upstairs, see if there was anyone else awake, or that I could wake up or anything. And they were all asleep, and you could hear nothing but snoring. And um, I came downstairs and was looking through magazines and so I just I was just really, really frustrated and in bad humour. So I got the scissors and I just chopped my hair off. I just, just cut it off. It was just, it felt good actually, you know. <laughs> um, I felt better after I'd done it. Um, I felt like, you know, you could just take all your frustrations out on it. it seems like a mad thing to have done. Like I felt better after it. <laughs> go mad at that time of the morning if you can't sleep even people that can't sleep would understand that like you know it's just you feel your head is going to explode you're just I think um, what's worse than not sleeping is being frustrated because you can't sleep 
is like lying in bed, tossing and turning, wondering why you can't get to sleep. I think, you know, you just kind of have to, well, right, I'm never going to sleep. The night time is the worst time because there's no one you can talk to. You can't even take your mind off things by watching the television, like, you know what I mean? There's nothing to watch. Yeah, the night time is the worst time. I think the silence kind of gets to you. You know, the silence reflects... It reflects the amount of help you get. You know, there's no hope, there's no sound. There's, you know... Um, the silence just reflects kind of the... how depressed you are, just kind of silence. There's no one there, like, there's nothing to help. 